Father, thank you for being a God who speaks, who reveals yourself to your image bearers with words, words with power, words that have the ability to transform us from the inside out. Uh, Father, as we come now to uh, Micah 7, we, we do ask that your word would have its way in us. Would you show that you are unlike any other, that there's no comparison to your glory or your justice or your leadership or your forgiveness? Oh, Father, would you fill our hearts with joy as we contemplate you, the God above all gods, the only one worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. On November the 15th of 1898, a patent was filed with the U.S. Patent Office on behalf of a man named Elijah McCoy. He was an engineer for the railroads that had figured out an elegant solution to a very sticky problem, the issue of lubricating engines. You see, back then, big engines were a real hassle to deal with. You could only run them for an hour or so before the whole thing had to be shut down, and someone had to go in and by hand add oil to all the moving parts or the entire thing would seize up. As you might imagine, that cost a lot of money and a lot of time. Well, Elijah, being an engineer, was thinking about that problem and he thought, you know what would be amazing? If there was some sort of an engine that could lubricate itself. So he came up with an invention called a self-lubricating engine or a lubrication cup that would, bit by bit, as the engine moved, apply just the right amount of oil to keep it running. Well, word got out. The competitors to his company decided to come up with their own versions of the self-lubricating engine. But as is often the case, the knockoffs just aren't quite as good as the original. So when people would go to buy an engine in those days, they started saying, hey, make sure you don't give me one of those bad ones. I want the real McCoy. A phrase we still use today, the real McCoy, right? You, you know the, the need for the real McCoy. You don't want the knockoff dollar store version of something. You want the real thing. Some things just can't be compared, can't measure up to them. Uh, Micah has in this book that's been filled with lots of bad news, he, he has one last message of unbelievably good news. News so good that it will make all of the judgment that God's people will go through worth it. It is this. No matter where you look, you won't find a God like ours. No matter where you look, you won't find a God like ours. There's no comparison. None of the other gods you can find or create will ever measure up to the true God. The God that we worship as his people. The, all of Micah 7 is built around that basic idea. You can see that down in verse 18. Who is a God like you? That's a rhetorical question with the answer being very obviously no one. The, the passage is really three reasons why there is no comparison to the true God, the God we worship. Those three reasons are as follows. First, in 1 through 10, because of his justice. Because of his justice. Second, in 11 through 17, it's because of his leadership. Because of his leadership. And then finally, in 18 through 20, it's because of his forgiveness. 
because of his forgiveness. Let's, let's begin that first section. No matter where you look, you won't find a God like the one we serve because of his justice. Now, Micah 6 was one of those really bad bits of news. Uh, if you remember back, things had gotten so bad that Micah uh, was seeing visions of judgment coming, not just against the upper crust of the Israelite nation, but against the nation as a whole. The, the corruption had started at the top with the leaders, but it had trickled down. And now each of the individual units, even at the bottom of society, were also guilty before God of breaking his laws and committing injustice themselves. Well, chapter 7 starts off on that same sort of bleak note. We see Micah in the midst of his misery. He declares, woe is me. What is it that has him so miserable? Well, it's because it appears as if all the righteous have left the land. There's no one that's upright left. Uh, Micah describes himself and, and this emptiness in him, this, this pit in his stomach, like someone walking through an orchard looking for trees, uh, looking for um, uh, trees for apples, only they've already been picked over. There's nothing there to be found. In verse 2, he, he brings the metaphor home. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Micah sees that one by one, the righteous, the godly, the innocent have been plucked by injustice. And it's gotten so bad, he's at a point where honestly he can say there's none left. It's just him. Uh, how did it get so bad? Well, that's what he shows us in the next couple verses. It's the powerful predators that have been prowling around. Verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. They're excellent at doing evil. Uh, the princes and the judges ask for a bribe. That's those people entrusted with bringing justice into society. Instead, were using their authority to enrich themselves. Even the, the best among them. Uh, those that were, the, if you were to try to pick anyone out as the bright spot. Look how he describes them in verse 4. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn's hedge. Uh, the idea there is, the best case scenario is you come across someone that's all they do is get in your way. They're an obstructionist. No one is helping each other. Certainly no one is holding up justice as God defines it. A nation like this that has fallen this far, you might say that it, they are ripe for judgment. Sometimes we think of judgment as only the big flash, flashy times where God brings calamity on a people. Uh, a big storm that blows through and knocks over buildings. Or some giant war that breaks out. Certainly God uses those things. The Bible talks about bringing judgment in those terms. And in fact, God will eventually flatten the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But very often, judgment starts much more subtly. Often it, it starts like a truck at the top of a hill. Maybe at first it's sitting still, but if you take the brakes off of it, it might start moving just a little bit at first. Little by little, it picks up speed. You might start to feel a little nervous about it as the wheels begin wobbling. And then sure enough, after it's got, gone all the way down, you have that great big crash. So it is so often in judgment. God's judgments are total. They start small, 
but they finish. Micah saw his day, a, the beginnings of judgment breaking out. Verse 4, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. God's removing the breaks on the Israelite society would come through injection of confusion among them, uh, allowing their basic relationships to turn on their head and become, in fact, instruments of their demise. Uh, that's what you see in verses 5 through 7. All the basic relationships that you would have, each of them becomes a source of distrust. You're not to trust your neighbor. You got to be careful what you say in front of your parents. You shouldn't even talk freely in front of your own spouse or your own kids because everyone is working an angle, looking for some way to get what they can get, no matter who they have to get it from. So it was in Micah's day, the, the truck was hurtling down the hill, no brakes, wheels wobbling, and he could see the crash was coming. And the crash came. A few hundred years after Micah's time, the Babylonians came and leveled the city of Jerusalem. They took all the upper crust, as well as anyone else of value, off to live in Babylon. Micah had a vision of this coming. And you might say that's some pretty bad news. Now, as you're hearing that, I'm sure many of us can't help but see parallels to the time in which we live and the nation in which we live. We wouldn't be the first Christians to have that sort of a sensation Wondering if we are living during a time of God's judgment beginning to accelerate. As if, wondering if there's a big crash coming. Now, only the hindsight of history can tell us for sure exactly how the course of a nation will run. God does at times avert the big crash at the end and change the direction of a nation dramatically. We certainly should pray as much. And yet, even if there is an accelerating sense that judgment is coming, I think there is hope to be found for Christians. Because there was hope in Micah's day, and they didn't avoid the crash. Uh, verse 7 is hopeful, a big shift. Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Even though Micah is convinced that God's judgment is coming, and indeed it's already here, he also is convinced that God will hear his cry. That God will not allow his people to be totally destroyed in his judgments, but would, in fact, save them through it. Uh, that's what we see in 8 through 10. God doing something that no one else can do. Saving his people through the very judgment that they dread. In verse 8, Micah imagines as if the nation is a woman crying out, saying, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Even though the nation is about to be trampled and leveled and carried off, it won't mean the end for them. God still has a plan. Uh, one day they will rise back up. God will lift them up. And when he does, it will be like they're being lifted out of darkness, back into light. Uh, God's punishment for them, it's, it's not the finality of his wrath. It, it is discipline for a time. Uh, eventually, he will turn his attention not to his judgment toward them, but his judgment toward their enemies. And on that day, they will see even those who have been oppressing them, Babylonians, tread down under God's feet. 
what we see here is an example of how God can do something that no human could ever do. And that is to bring complete, total, and balanced justice to this world. Oh, we should be very thankful for the examples of justice that we do see. We should work toward it. We should encourage it, do all we can to foster it. And yet we need to remember that at best we get proximate justice in this world. At best we catch a few of the bad guys and rescue a few of the innocent. But none of us are God. Not the best judge or the most powerful tribunal. Not the biggest military strongman. There is not a court on earth that can bring perfect justice like God can. Uh, think back to one of the greatest atrocities in human history. The Nazis, what they did in the Holocaust. One of the darkest days since God made image bearers to walk on this world. Uh, the Nazis excelled in their evil. They made ruthless efficiency into an art form. And, you know, thankfully, eventually their evil was put to an end by the allied forces. A lot of people gave their lives for that. Very good outcome. And there were even some trials that were held afterward, the, the Nuremberg trials. So they, they took the, the worst offenders, the, the upper crust at least, and brought them to a measure of justice. But the Nuremberg trials didn't catch everybody. Only a very select few were convicted. Many more had escaped justice through death. Others escaped justice by slithering away and going off and living peaceful lives until they got old and died. Others were pardoned just because we didn't have the administrative power to try and give them a trial. That's the way with human justice. We can't bring justice at all levels to all people at all times. And yet that's what justice according to God is. But the good news is that God can and God will do just that. That the small instances of judgment that we see are a prelude to the final day of judgment. When God will rescue his people by bringing a final and full form of justice to this world. Now, as a Christian, there is a discipline that goes along with believing this. Like Micah, we need to learn to wait on the Lord's justice. Oh, it can be hard, especially when you've been sinned against directly. When someone done something awful to you, harming you with their words or their actions, it can feel like your life can't be okay until you see them brought to justice. And yet a Christian has to learn to leave room for the wrath of God. Situations where we can't see earthly justice. We rest at the reality that perfect justice is coming on the day when his son Jesus Christ comes and ushers in the day of final judgment. The full accounting. The day where every sinner's sins are brought to light. And the scales will be evened once and for all. What other person or God can offer judgment so full, every direction for every person at every time, as our God. Of course, nobody. The second thing about our God that is incomparable, and that's his leadership. See that in verses 11 through 17. Now, the people of Israel had learned the hard lesson that a lack of good leadership has consequences. 
Uh, if you want to do some reading to see that in your Bible, just read through the books of First and Second Kings. You get rain after rain of people sitting on David's throne, failing to live up to their calling, failing to bring justice and to lead God's people to right worship, and as a result, the whole nation suffers. Micah's at the tail end of that. He would have been acutely aware of how these failures of the kings had led to this eventual coming crash of judgment. And yet, in the midst of this, Micah sees a vision of a coming time where God's people are prospering under a strong and good king. In 11 through 13, he sees the city itself being brought back, built better than it ever was before into a new, wondrous, prosperous time. And in verse 11, he sees them building the walls. Now, it's not just building back the walls. See the second line. And that day, the boundary will be far extended. This can't be fulfilled in Nehemiah building back the, the burned and broken down walls of Jerusalem. Because the borders here are supposed to expand out further than they've ever been before. This is the kingdom of God expanding with the expectation that maybe, just maybe, it will reach all around the world. Uh, inside this expanded city, you see God gathering a people for himself. That's what you see in verse 12. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river. That's a way of saying uh, the north and south on the Israelite map or sea to sea, mountain to mountain. That is from everywhere. They're, they're coming from all across the globe. God is gathering them into his city, his people. This renewed city with a higher population than it ever had has the best of all leaders. Look in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. God himself is being called to step down and shepherd his people. The flock that he says are mine, they are my inheritance. Now back in Micah's day, a shepherd was a common metaphor to talk about a king or a god. As a shepherd had to tend a flock, so it was the job of the king to protect his subjects. Well, here, God himself is taking up the task where all the other kings have failed. He will step in, and he will shepherd the flock. And notice, he brings them to a place of plenty and peace. Uh, they're brought to a place that's like a, a garden land. Sounds a little bit like Eden, doesn't it? They're given fields to graze in that used to be part of Israel's territory, but had been lost during the wars. Once again, now these lush, prosperous areas are now theirs to feed on. They're dwelling alone. That is, they're safe. Notice that God is able to keep them safe because as their shepherd, he has the strength to do so. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Uh, back in Egypt, God showed his marvelous power by destroying Pharaoh and his armies through the parting of the Red Sea and sending that wall of water to crush down on top of the blasphemer Pharaoh. Again, God will show his strength and he will use it to protect his people. The nations won't threaten them anymore. 
No, instead the nations will bow down, silent, their faces in the dirt. Because there's no doubt who is the strongest. It is Israel's God. Now we live in a day and a time where we have so many things wrong about how we think about leadership. It seems like we make mistakes on the extremes. At one level, we are extremely cynical about any type of authority. Uh, we've gotten used to politicians lying to us like crazy. We have a, a built-in mistrust for anyone that sits at the top of some bureaucracy or some institution. So much so that many people, frankly, act as if the absence of any authority over them is a good thing. There's also the opposite error we make. That is, we worship authority. Uh, there are some examples that we, we have of people that we look to almost as if they are supernatural because of their ability to be successful or to lead people. Uh, I went looking up uh, the famed Steve Jobs, you know, very famous for how turning around Apple, making it profitable again, building the iPhone, all that good stuff. Do you know there are four movies that have been made about him? Four movies about one guy who made technology. Why is that? We love the idea of this visionary leader that's going to show us the, the right way to go, can rally people behind him and sees things everyone else can't see and will lead us into prosperity. Now, both of these ways of thinking of earthly authority and leadership aren't fitting for a Christian. Now, as Christians, we understand that there are right and good places where God has put people in authority. We should be thankful for rightly used authority and submit to it. And we also need to realize that every single human leader that exists, except for one named Jesus, every single human leader has shortcomings. There are limits to their authority. And sooner or later, if you look hard enough, you will find some very serious flaws. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he doesn't have any of those flaws. He is the leader that our hearts long for when we go chasing after these leadership heroes that we idolize. He's the, the strong leader that keeps God's people safe from all the enemies that would come after them, their own sin, the devil, the world around them. He, he is the visionary leader leading them into a good place, a, a place of peace and prosperity, even to heaven one day. Yet he's also the gentle and kind and servant leader. The, the leader that gives himself to protect his people, to ensure that they will be safe and secure forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, never mix up earthly leadership with the heavenly leadership you have in Jesus. I need to ask you, brothers and sisters, this week, are you following the lead of King Jesus over you? Are you trusting that he will lead you to a place of peace and plenty if you take that step of obedience that you are kind of on the fence about? Are you finding your heart tugged towards someone else in your life who has some measure of authority, maybe a boss, a mentor? Do you have a sneaking suspicion that maybe it's even an inappropriate of level of weight you're placing upon what they think of you? Be reminded again that there is no one like our God. There's no one that can measure up to Jesus and the leadership he provides for you. 
Let's make him the measure of what right leadership is. And we'll never be let down. There's one final way that our God is incomparable. And you might say that it is the Lord's way to leave the best for last. He is incomparable because in verses 18 through 20, because of his forgiveness. Because of his forgiveness. Verse 18, you see Micah's name in his message because it turns out he is a man whose name is a message. His name is Micah or Mikaiah, which means who is like Yahweh. That first phrase in 18. And the answer is, of course, nobody. Nobody's like Yahweh. And what attribute of God is most, uh, most uh, demonstrates this incomparability of God? It is that he pardons iniquity. Uh, Micah heaps up phrases to get across this idea that God chiefly is someone who forgives sins. He passes over transgressions. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He shows compassion to us. And then the best of all, verse 19, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea so hard for us to imagine a God that forgives like that because, because our hearts are so frail and wicked. We always are fearful that something that we have confessed to and asked for forgiveness from will, will one day be brought back out at a, the worst possible moment to weapon, be weaponized against us. Micah uses an image to tell us that you don't have to worry about your sins coming back one day. They're gone, and they're never coming back. Uh, maybe you find yourself this week playing over in your head again. Some sin that you had told yourself you were past, and yet here you are again. Done the thing you promised God you would never do again, and you feel so guilty about it. It makes you sick. Uh, in that moment, it's very hard to feel forgiven, to believe there's no condemnation for you as a Christian. In a moment like that, I in invite you Consider the anglerfish. Yes, you heard me right. In that moment where you're feeling guilty, I want you to think about the anglerfish. Now, the anglerfish is probably not a fish that you have seen in person. Um, it lives in a part of the ocean that they call the abyss. It's about three miles deep or deeper. Uh, so deep that light doesn't shine down there at all. It's pitch black. Uh, the only food to be found are little bits that were left from the bigger fish above that trickle down. Uh, the anglerfish lives down there. Chances are you will never come face to face with one. Now you may ask me, Tommy, why, why are you talking about the anglerfish? Uh, the anglerfish has no bearing on my life. And yes, that's exactly the point. If you understand what it means for God to forgive you as Micah is saying it, your sins have as much bearing on your relationship with God as the anglerfish does. Your sins are out of sight, out of reach. They are gone and never coming back if they've been paid for by the blood of Jesus. As much as we in our flesh fail to feel this way, it is the God's honest truth revealed from the very words of Scripture your sins are gone and they're never coming back. 
Now, maybe you say, all right, Tommy, I believe that, but surely God just does that because he's bound to, like a contract with a clause he wishes wasn't there. But did you notice what Micah said? Verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God isn't begrudging to give you this forgiveness. It is part of what he loves to do, to keep his promises to his people that he gave so long ago. Those promises started with Abraham, and they've carried down generation by generation through the history of God's people until they have come to you, who are inheritors of the promise of Abraham through your faith in Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a spiritual failure. He doesn't see someone he wishes was outside of the people of God. Oops. No, when God looks at you, he sees someone that he loves. Someone he is delighted to have pardoned. Someone that causes his affection to rise when he, even, uh, when he brings you before himself. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that this is not the way most of us think about ourselves. That as Christians, we are going to have moments where we're going to have that nagging sense that we're not sure if we're forgiven. Which is why we need verses like this to remind us. Maybe this week you need to write down that little verse 19. He has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. So you can remember, your sins are gone and they're never coming back. Now if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Uh, this is the most important thing that I'm going to say all morning for you. So I hope you'll listen. Many people think of God as vaguely interested in what humans do with their lives. As mostly permissive, mostly like a grandpa in the sky that just kind of shrugs his shoulders when we mess up. But that's very different from how the Bible presents God. God the Bible tells us that God is loving. Yes, that's true. But the Bible also tells us that God is holy and just, that he keeps account of each and every one of our sins, and that when we break his holy law, the right punishment for our sins is his wrath. It is unending wrath, a world of never-ending sorrow, being punished for the ways we have rebelled against God. If you're not a Christian, this is the bad news about your life. You're not okay on your own. God won't be happy to see you if you die and meet him one day. Unless you meet him through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the good news of what the Bible teaches. And we call the gospel. That God, though he was not obligated to in any way, that he made a way for sinners to be forgiven by sending his son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to live the perfect life that we should have lived, and to give his life as a substitute for sinners. To absorb the punishment that our sins deserve. So that if we put our trust in Jesus, we can escape the wrath of God. And instead find the love of God to be our eternal destiny. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with God. Or, or maybe you know you're far from him. I want nothing more for, for you than for you to find the same thing. That every Christian that's lived thousands of years now has found to be true and will know to be true for all eternity. That because of Jesus, our sins are gone and they're never coming back. 
And you can know that about yourself this morning. Now, if you don't know how to do that, come find anyone with a name tag after the service. We'd love to have a conversation with you and help you understand how you can put your trust in Jesus and know your sins are forgiven. Now, brothers and sisters, I wonder, is there anyone that can measure up to the God that Micah describes? Is there anyone so perfect in his judgments, so powerful in his leadership, and so tender in his forgiveness? If there are no gods like the God you worship through Jesus Christ, then don't go chasing after the supposed gods of this world. No, no matter where you look or no matter how hard you search, you won't find anyone like him. Your heart has found its resting place. It's with Jesus and it'll be there forever. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song entitled, His Mercy is More. I hope as you do that, that the Lord might cement in your heart this truth that you need this week. Hear these words, true of your life if you're in Christ. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.